Episode one, amazing. Episode two, amazing. Episode three, just as amazing. In this episode, we delve in from a hashkafa perspective, just how much work you need to put into your work versus having emuna and batachon that Hashem will provide for you. We took a visit to the OU's headquarters. The audio might sound a little bit different here, but we were in their lower Manhattan headquarters, met with Ramosha Hauer. Super insightful. I think you'll like episode three. Sponsored by livingsmarterjewish.org. All your money resources that you need are on that website. If you want to speak to someone, hit them up. Info at livingsmarterjewish.org. Enjoy. Being a Jew? Awesome. Managing personal finances? Not so awesome. Welcome to Kosher Money. Uh, welcome to another episode of Kosher Money. Today we have with us Reb Moshe Hauer, Executive Vice President at the OU. And for those that are unfamiliar with the OU, I encourage them to push pause, do a quick Google search. And uh, But I do believe many, many are familiar. Uh, Rabbi Hauer, how are you? Baruch Hashem. I got very good. Very well. I think this is an important conversation to have as we uh, work our way into other episodes about budgeting, uh, savings, earnings. Um, wanted to hit this right off the bat. Um, when it comes to hishtadlis versus bitachon and amuna, how does a from Jew balance those two, right? There's no, we don't go through school with some sort of equation that says, okay, you know, 60% of your life should be focused on amuna and bitachon, and then you allocate uh, 40% to hishtadlis. And, and just to piggyback off that, should I be leaving, should I be staying at work until 10 o'clock, right, if I'm running a business? Or... No, I leave at six o'clock, allocate the rest of the night with my family. Where, where do you draw the line on, on something like that? Okay. It, it, the question is a critical question. And there's not a simple single answer to the question of the balance between Hishtadlis and Bitacha. There's something of a sliding scale that exists in this matter. And let's try to talk it through and think about it a little bit. Uh, perhaps, though, uh, to draw sort of a straw man to start with. Uh, we have a lot of debates about this in the from community when it comes to Parnosa. Let's talk for a couple of minutes about another area, medicine. The same questions of Hishtadlis versus, versus Bitochon apply when it comes to a, a medical issue, a, a medical emergency. In fact, one of the primary makoros that we have in the Rishonim that guide us in managing this is a famous Ramban in Parshas Bechukosai, which is mostly focused on the matter of medicine. Now, what's our attitude as a community when it comes to Hishtadlis for medicine? There are few communities in the world, I think, that are as sophisticated in their pursuit of making proper efforts, sophisticated efforts, when it comes to medical treatment. Is there any other community that you know of that has its own emergency medical services to make sure that the response comes as quickly as possible. Bitochon has not put Hatzalah out of business. Right. There's no community in the world that has the kind of medical referral to get the greatest experts, you know, that a from person who has an ingrown toenail has it treated by the chief of surgery at Columbia Presbyterian. You know, we do, we, we go all out when it comes to those things. And so the, the, the difference maybe between them is sometimes it's easier to approach emergencies than it is to approach basic lifestyle, constant lifestyle issues. 
so let's let's just you know put that out there as we as we consider this discussion, because we all understand that the way Hakadosh Baruch Hu made the world is that he expects us to make efforts on every realm, even in areas. Chazal taught us that even in areas where his intervention is assured, like for example, the symbol of Parnassah in Klal Yisrael was the Shulchan in the Beis Hamikdash. There's your bread, there's mm-hmm. your food. And everybody knows, you know, there was a miracle which happened with the Lechem Aponim that it stayed warm from when it was baked on Erev Shabbos till it was removed from the Shulchan nine, you know, the ninth day from then, which is the following, following Shabbos. Lechem Cham, Yom Hilakho. And yet, as, as we know, Chazal told us, we'll set it up, put certain pipes on the table so that the breads aren't sitting on top of each other so that they'll stay fresh. Even when you know a miracle will occur, you're supposed to make efforts. That's part of the human partnership that HaKadosh Baruch Hu expects, that we do our part. And bitachon means that you believe that you're supposed to make efforts, but the success of those efforts are determined by HaKadosh Baruch Hu. A person could work very hard and Hashem could decide that it's not someone to, to it can be delivered. You know, ton nisht eif ton. It's a mm-hmm. famous expression. Our job is to do, not to accomplish. We do, and we hope that HaKadosh Baruch Hu brings us the, brings us the accomplishment. So the, the, the discussion of Hishtal Zambitochon, again, I, I don't mean to oversimplify. We can go, mm-hmm. we'll go deeper a little bit, but Hishtadlus is an area which is our responsibility. And whenever we are going to face a decision when it comes to the Parnosa questions, which we're here to talk about and say, but one second, what about Hishtadlus? We, we would do wise to ask ourselves, if this was a medical question, would we have the same, quote unquote, laissez-faire attitude and say, I'm going to put my trust in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, or would I feel that this is still part of the effort which is mandated for me by HaKadosh Baruch Hu? So, you understand yeah, what I'm sure. saying? It's sort of like, a, I think it, it, it's helpful to draw that context. On the medical side, though, people will go to all ends of the earth to seek out a solution, right? right. That, that's life or death. Right. Parnasa, on the other hand, is somewhat lower down on the totem pole when it comes to urgency. Should someone go to all ends of the earth, right? So there, there, there's a significant difference that, that you point out. It's, it's constant. It's, a, it's the daily routine of the person. Chazal taught us that you should be discriminating when you choose what you do for a parnasa. There, there's, I think there are two primary places where Chazal address it. One is in the Mishnah of the end of Masechus Kiddushin where it says that a person should teach their child an umnus kala v'nekiah. Two criteria. Kala, light, and nekiah, clean. Kala means that it doesn't overwhelm their life, which is a very, very relevant instruction. There are jobs that are 724 or 624, you know, we, we would say in our, in our world, and, um, and they can overtake one's life. Uh, it might be easier to, you know, to have a, a kind of a um, kind of a parnasa which is not so, which is not so intense. And Nikia is clean. I like how the phone went off. Do you have a job that's Kal? 
you know, I guess that's a sign to... Uh, no, but I don't know how to turn off the volume on my ringer. I can help it was, with that. It was, <laughs> um, it was off, please, please, sure, it was sure, off sure. forever, and suddenly today it started making noise. That's okay. There you go. Okay. Um, so, um, so yeah. seeking out those jobs that are kala. So there's a value to, to, to kala, to, 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 to be able to have a career that allows you to, quote unquote, also have a life separate from that. You know, the, the picture that the Rambam drew of a person's day where it's divided into thirds of sleep, taking care of all one's personal needs, including work and learning. And it's like eight hours each. You know, it's like dreamy on every level. It's just completely away, different from our, our lifestyle and from what, you know, that's what we call a Kali in the lab. You know, that's not, it's not a, that's not, um, that's not, that's not working. But there still is a value to that sort of balanced perspective. To, it's, it's a battle, it's a balance of Hishtadlis and Bitochon. It's also a balance of work and life work in Avodas Hashem, work in family, that is important to strike. And on the second level is Nakia. And Nakia is very important. Nakia means clean. Remember the context where the Mishnah teaches that is a person who would have an onus, would have a craft, a trade, that would bring them perhaps into morally compromising situations or temptation. That's where, the, that's where we learn Hilchas Yichud. Right. You know about how a person, uh, you know, would, would would be interacting with the opposite gender. So, so uh, uh, a a craft which doesn't call upon the person to make moral compromises, and uh, or ethical compromises, and that's probably one of the biggest pieces when it comes to the hishtadlus bitachon matter, because we make efforts. If we believe that the efforts themselves yield fruit, so we might disregard whether there are side problems with the efforts, like they're not exactly ethical, they're a little gray or something like that. But if we understand that the, that the efforts themselves are just the setup for HaKadosh Baruch Hu to help us, it's, it's not really possible to imagine that Hashem wants us to do this. Right. Hashem wants us to do this. So, so the, the, the Bitochon standard is very central to our thinking, but perhaps we would say less so to how much I'm going to do and more to what specifically I'm going to do and what I'm going to consider to be off limits. Understood. So, so let's say someone does have the, the right job in the right industry and assuming that there are no moral compromises and, and it is kal, it is light, how and, and thinking of the Rambam in terms of allocating and, and maybe it is dreamy to, to, to think that you can do eight, eight and eight. Is that something that even if someone can't get it to be a perfect equation, is that something that someone should be striving for? Right. Keeping in mind that, hey, my job does require me at certain points to spend 12 hours in the office. Should I actively fight back against that? Not so much to lose their job, but to say, hey, I need to keep to somewhat, somewhat of a quote-unquote normal schedule because at some point, the more I put in, I'm not going to see uh, a different return. Yeah. So the, you know, the answer is, uh, yes, a person needs to try to, 
to, to do, but we have to be realistic, quote unquote, in this conversation, mm -hmm. knowing what the knowing what the field is. So what what does that mean? Uh, say you know you have to make sure that you don't work too hard, that it doesn't take over your life. Okay, that's good. And how am I going to pay my mortgage? And how am I going to pay my tuitions? And how am I going to and how I'm going to do everything? Uh, we 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 know that we have to put it. The way you frame the question, and it's not it's not necessarily typical, but just to 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 bring it back, there's a famous Gemara where where I think it was Rava, if I'm not mistaken, told his Talmudim, I don't want to see you during Nisan and Tishrei because those were high agriculture seasons. Spend day and night working your fields, and that way the rest of the year I'll be able to see you. In other words, yeah, there's certain times when you say, okay, go all out, put everything you can into work, and that way the balance, it won't be each and every day has balance, but your life will have balance. You can invest a lot of time now, and then you'll be able to have, you'll, you'll, you'll have a lot of time. You'll have a lot of time later. I don't know that every one of us has the ability to be able to arrange their life and their career that way and still make a go of it. Assuming we're not farmers in the case Assuming of... Assuming we're not yeah. farmers, right? Yeah. Assuming we're not farmers. And uh, also, you know, in, in many, again, if a person they, is in certain kinds of trades, they have high season, you know, toy season or jewelry season or, or tax season or whatever else it is, and maybe they can like do a ton of work then. and perhaps be able to, to take it easy at other times. And that's a way to find, it's a way to find balance. But the, 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 the goal has to be there with, a, with, with a, both a practical realization of what can be accomplished and can't be accomplished. And just don't shelve the goal. We need to understand that we have to be human beings outside of work, hopefully, our work could blend with our life goals and not just be a complete and total distraction from them. But we have to be there for family. We have to be able to be Jews, you know, who are so in the Torah, who, you know, who, 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 who learn and are able to, to daven. It's, a, it's quite a menu of responsibilities that we have and we have a very expensive lifestyle. So it makes the first, you know, the, 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 the work part a big deal. But that's part of what has to frame this, and that's sure. why we're having this conversation. Sure. Yeah, I think, and, and we'll get to the very expensive uh, lifestyle in this particular episode, though I do want to touch on one more point. When it comes to uh, building betachon, or becoming a bal betachon, what are practical tips on how one can attain, attain that, right? How do, you, how do you bring more betachon into your life? particularly when it comes to finances, right? For, for people that may be struggling, um, how do you say, hey, maybe I won't spend 12 more hours in the office, but I'm gonna increase the amount of betachon that I have. How, should, how, how, how does one acquire this magical betachon? Um, okay. Is there a magical way to acquire bitachon. I don't know if there's such a thing called magical bitachon. Is there a magical way to, to accomplish bitachon? I don't think so. I think that, that bitachon is acquired through diligence at, you know, in the language of Chazal, Shem Shamayim Shogor Befiv. Have Hashem's name on your lips, which I, 
can be very, very superficial, but it could also be real. If we stop when we're looking for something, you know, that we lost, and we don't just say, I gotta look in this other place, I gotta look in this other place, but we stop and we say, you know, Hashem, illuminate my eyes, whatever you wanna, whatever, whatever you, you, you wanna say. When we don't engage in Hishtadlus without invoking Hashem's name. Now, the, the reason why we daven Shachris in the morning before we go to par, part of it is that we frame every effort which we're about to make in terms of the tefillah. We're not going to go it alone and just go out into the workplace. We daven. Now, again, for us, sometimes we, we bifurcate, you know, okay, there's davening, and then I'm going to work. Davening is supposed to be the hagdama to work. Mincha is not, I'm not taking a break during the day, daven, and then go back. It's, it's supposed to carry, it's supposed to carry the rest of what we're doing. And the more in our minds we see those things as together, the more that becomes a reality that will influence our decisions. And Chazal teach us, the more we, Hashem will be a presence. The more we genuinely, through and through, in our bones, are trusting in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the more HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, that's the guy I'm looking out for. That's the one I'm, you know, he's looking to me. I want to be there for him. The one who gives me a distracted glance once in a while. So I'll give him a distracted glance once in a while. And, you know, as sobering as that is, but that's what the Chayvah Salvavah wrote in the Shara Vitachon. It's just going to get less attention. Right. So that's part of what we were alluding to earlier when we spoke about the sliding scale. Well, the more we make God a part of our lives, the more he is. It sounds like the theme so far of this particular episode in this discussion is living with intent. You know, as Jews, we, everything we do should be with intent. So for the listening audience that might be going through the motions of uh, building up their career and, and looking to earn more and, and work on their hishtalis, it's not going to happen by chance, right? This is something that someone has to actively take upon themselves to, to build that betacha. To build that muscle at the same time. Right. To build that muscle, yeah. That, that person has to have a vision for their hishtalis. They also have to have a vision for their betacha. The, 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 to be spiritually aspirational and ambitious, um, side by side with all the other ambition that we bring to our tasks in life is a game changer. It's a real game changer. When it comes to the standards of living in the Jewish world, right? You can drive through other neighborhoods. Um, there's certainly affluent neighborhoods in the, in the non-Jewish world, and then there are less affluent neighborhoods. There's a, a melting pot when it comes to Orthodox Jewry, right? We have limited amounts of neighborhoods, right? No, you're not going to get a phone call from a friend and say, hey, I moved over to Kansas. There's nothing there, right, in terms of when it comes to kosher food or limited limited options, I should say. Well, Hashem, we have a nice Orthodox Jewish community in Kansas. Okay, I'm coming up. I'm in the OU <laughs> telling them what, what they do have or don't have. Um, but yeah. Beautiful community, I'm sure. Yeah? Yes. It's growing? Yes, I think so. I think so. I think so. You could probably create provide a list of uh, neighborhoods that people should. We have a we have a we have a whole uh, small communities project of small communities in Klal Yisrael that are growing and developing seriously. Wow! And uh, that offer, amongst other things, they offer a partial solution to the Orthodox affordability issue. 
should that should that be a, a serious consideration for people that feel that they can't make it in a particular neighborhood to consider, hey, let me move to an out of town uh, neighborhood? I, I think it should be a serious consideration even for people who feel that they can make it. It's not out of town isn't for quote unquote losers who can't who can't make it. Yeah. Out of town is an opportunity for many people to number one because that's what we're talking about, but I don't necessarily feel that this is objectively number one, is to escape many of the pressures. Right? A person could make it, even if they need, even if their monthly nut is $50,000 between tuition and their house payment and their car payments and so on and so forth, they could make it, but they're gonna be that guy or that couple that we talked about before who's, who doesn't have a life, who's working day and night. And maybe if they're in Kansas City, or they're in Detroit or Cincinnati or, or some other place, um, maybe they can work significantly less and have more of a life. So it's not that they can't make it in the big city, but they want a different quality of life that they can sometimes have when they're away from some of the serious pressures which our larger Jewish communities have. Um, in addition, they can have the meaningful impact of being in a smaller community where their presence is more noticed and more valued and the contributions they can make are gonna be much bigger. Um, it's, it's a very valuable option for many people. Now again, many wouldn't consider it because they value something else which is valuable, which is to have their kids grow up down the block or around the, the corner from their grandparents and or from uncles and aunts and so on and so forth. There are many considerations in this decision like like many others. There's also but this stigma. There is something there in Kansas. Yeah, there, but there <laughs> is this. Dorothy. Yeah, there is this stigma though that, oh, you're from out of town or right there, it comes along it, with it. It depends amongst whom. Yeah. In, in certain places, there's quote unquote a stigma about being from out of town, and in certain places, there's a stigma about being from in town. In town, right. So what are the growing neighborhoods? What, what, what cities out there, um, assuming that I'm an ignorant New Yorker, right? Well, I, I haven't been to Kansas recently. Okay. Um, but I could just give you, like, I could give you two examples that I, I, I had the privilege happened to visit just a few weeks ago, back-to-back -back Cincinnati and Detroit, which are two you know, Cincinnati's smaller, Detroit is larger. Uh, in both communities, it's right now hard to find a house in the from community because so many people are living there, want to live there. And, um, and they're developing, they're beautifully developing communities with a growing Jewish infrastructure, schooling and everything, and, uh, and a different pace. 10 to 20 years ago, that these communities weren't as built up as where they are now. No. Wow. 10 years ago, six years ago, uh, these communities have many, you know, dozens of families moving there every summer. And that's a byproduct of children, a second generation that's moving in or, or people from there, there, the there, there are some intentional efforts which are done to grow these communities. And, uh, you know, many, some of some have built around Colowin and about around, you know, job opportunities and real estate opportunities. And, uh, but it's, it's happening. There's, there's a hunger many people have to, to find alternatives to the big cities and all that that brings. And the OU, that's one of the focuses, enhancing 
Jewish life. We have and, a, we have a, a yes, we, we have a, uh, uh, we have a specific uh, uh, project, which is uh, for helping to develop communities, community, uh, um, Simon, what's the formal name of it? A fair? Huh? Small communities. The small communities. It's, it's, it's amazing how the OU has so many different divisions, projects, and efforts that the name of a particular, right? In my small business, I have like three total projects, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, there's so many different subsets. There are many, many things that uh, we, we need to be engaged in. And this is a very valuable one. Uh, you know, the, 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 those quote-unquote small communities, maybe, maybe we should call them the growing communities, um, because they are. And... Uh, the Jewish people need options, you know, beyond the, beyond the tri-state, and, and and again, there there is such opportunity, and there's something very very strong and wholesome that's growing in these communities. Nowhere in the Luchos does it talk about how much materialism one should have, right? Assuming someone gives tzedakah and plentiful amounts, is overindulgence addressed by Chazal and the Mofarsha on how much is too much, right? You look at weddings. They have pre-chuppah, massive smorgasbords in exotic locations. How much is too much, right? How? Did I stun? No. <laughs> um. Uh, Baruch Hashem, you ask, uh, Eli, ask good questions, and you ask questions that don't have a single, simple answer. Um, I was looking for a specific number, right? Like, a specific number, yeah, okay. Yeah, 274,000 too much. Perfect, perfect, yeah. that's it, that's it. Um, Chazal speak in, in, in different places about this. Uh, the Ramban, for example, is a famous comment of the Ramban, who speaks about... Naval Bishwas HaTorah, who feels that it's a mitzvah de oraisa, Torah command, the mitzvah saseh, for a person to to make sure that they they do not become completely enmeshed, overwhelmed in material things, that they should be kedoshim, which means that they should be somewhat above that, above those material things. Ramban famously describes the person who makes sure to have glad called kosher, chov Yisrael, yashan, you know, chasidah shashchita in the works, but just eats all day and, 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 and the like. And the Ramban says that's a person who's a failed human being, a novel, even though he's technically maybe walking between the lines. We're supposed to be kedoshim, kedoshim. And that's like, like, that's like the easiest way to sort of answer the question, is, is what we are observing Kedusha. Now, fascinatingly, there was a man who was known as the Kodesh. I'm not talking about a Hasidish Rebbe. I'm talking about Rabbi Yudanasi, Rabbeinu HaKodesh. Rabbeinu HaKodesh was someone that throughout the year on his table were all kinds of uh, plants, which means that the, he had the pick of vegetables and plants and things the whole year round. Now, for us, that's again, that's no big deal because they ship in the kiwis from New Zealand and is that no an one, exotic, where, uh, wherever else it is. But was it, that a sign of 
it was a, it was a sign of abundance uh -huh. to be able to have those things not just when it's in season but to have it all the time was a sign of wealth and it it continues to be it continues to be a sign of wealth except just we have a, 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 a much less of a baseline it's a sign of a prosperous society but he he had he had it all and you know he he famously expressed it in the extreme that when he died he held up his pinky and he said I, I didn't benefit from this or enjoy this afilu cats katana even like a pinky finger size whatever that means so it's up for debate whether but, but, Nasi lived in an out-of-town community no Rabbi Nasi lived in town in town he was the Nasi he had a gorgeous house he had a laden table and he wasn't imprisoned by it he wasn't imprisoned by it he was ready to drop it in a second and that's really what to be a kadosh means to be above to be above a, a person is blessed with material success there's nowhere that i know of that it would say that they have a mitzvah to pretend that they're making the same amount of money as a minimum minimum wage worker i mean they can live like that so why don't you live like that no for those who have been given blessing, they have every right to live with, with that blessing. But to be imprisoned by that blessing is where the problem is, so to speak. I don't think the right term is imprisoned by the blessing, but then to become a creature of that material success. Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's where the problem is. And it, it manifests itself in the fact that it becomes so widespread a need for others to be able to manage the same way. So how much onus is on a person in that position to not create peer pressure? Keeping up with the cones is a, a term that gets thrown around. Is there no onus on him, right? If he's living, assuming he's living, where he's not imprisoned by the blessing, yeah. sharing the wealth, etc., but he is also creating some sort of peer pressure for the fellow down the block, is, is it the onus on the fellow down the block to not feel the need to live within the... I, I, I think there's a word onus and there's a word opportunity. Right? We're using the English word onus, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the onus, which is the burden, the responsibility, I do not think is on the wealthy person. Nope. He's allowed to live within his means. The onus is on everybody to live within their means. He has more means. The onus is on him is to live within his means. The person who has lesser means has to look in the mirror, has to look in the bank account, and to see what they can afford and decide to, and live their lives accordingly. That's who the onus is upon. There is an opportunity for a person who has more to say, you know, I could have, but I want to show that even though I could, I don't need to. I want to demonstrate it to myself Maybe I want to make it easier for others. Maybe I want to make it easier for others. And that's an opportunity for that person to show leadership. I mean, I'm sure you, like, like, like uh, I, have seen people who could have made that $274,000 affair, could have had the, you know, whatever it is, but decided, you know, I'm going to make a, a simpler wedding and maybe I'll use some of that money to help 
the young couple have a down payment. Maybe I'll use it to help someone who doesn't have the ability even to have a basic wedding to help you know, orphans or whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to have. Or maybe I'll just actually keep it in the bank, which isn't an Avera either. Mm-hmm. It's not an Avera. It doesn't have to burn a hole in anybody's, you know, pocket or, or bank book. And, and when they do it, you know, people look. Some people look and say, hmm, they made such a wedding. More people look and say, Gvura. You know, that, that person just did something. Now, it, it's, that's not an onus. Nothing wrong with a person doing what their means afford them to do. Mm-hmm. Everybody has that as their onus that they have to do that. If somebody wants to go lifnimishura sadin. It's different. That there's a famous case which is in the Gemara and Ksubis, which was a takana that remains in place to this day, which was that there was a time when it was fancy funerals. We don't know in the Orthodox community what that means, basically. But there was a time when it was fancy funerals were the thing. And the Gemara records that people were abandoning their dead because they couldn't make a funeral that would meet, you know, that would keep up with the cones, although the cones didn't usually go to funerals. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't make a funeral that would keep up with, uh, with, with the expected standards. So they abandoned their dead. And that money's coming out of the well? Where it you know, maybe that's why they pivoted away. So, so no, so they made a takana, and the takana was, you know, Rebbe said, right, don't, Rebbe Mamliel was it? Excuse me, maybe I'm wrong. One of the from the mishpachas hanasi, right. excuse me for not remembering, um, uh, said, you know, bury me in the simplest. Don't bury me b'shiroi. Bury me in the simplest, and that's why to this day we have a simple pine box. We have a uh, simple linen shroud. Okay, sometimes the hearse is a Cadillac, okay. you know. But uh, but but aside from that, those were the, those were the main takanas. Now there, they did that. They imposed it, and and historically, in in Jewish history, there were times where they did that for, for other things as well, where they said you can't. But it's a very difficult thing to impose, uh, generally, and it's not necessarily that's when it's desperate. Ideally. We should be a mature community that know how to live within our means, and uh, and you know, you know that's really that's really the the thing that does it all. You know, the Rambam writes about you asked before about sources in Chazal. The Rambam writes mm-hmm. in Hilchos Deos about a person, you know, needing to live within their means in, in certain areas, even a little bit below their means in one area a little bit above their means, mm-hmm. you know, but, but, but by and large, you know, this is the, the way of Chachamim, as the Ramam wrote, you know, to do it that way. And it's not, you know, one, one thing which, which, uh, which is a very important point for us to, to talk about is that living within one's means is not sapping out the life from the party. It's not true. A person who's going to live within their means, live a good, balanced lifestyle, has a, it's, it's joyful, it's positive, and it's not like joyful or positive in the austere sense of that family that I visited in right. Meisharim that had 44 children, you know, in a two-bedroom apartment, you know, living on bookshelves. I mean, it's talking about just, you know, normal lifestyle. That's out of town, by the way, right? The uh, two-bedrooms for him. <laughs> um, where... Uh, 
where you just, you, you're, you, you know you can make it. You're handling yourself. You know, you don't, you don't have the fanciest thing, but you don't have the, man, the, the monthly payment that goes along with it. I, yeah. I was expecting a different answer, to be honest, to the peer pressure question, right? What I, I was expecting, yeah, there is some level of onus, I mean, assuming that there is someone down the block or a subset of houses on your block where you know they can't afford a certain car or to build up on their house, et cetera, that there is an answer there where, yeah, maybe you take it down a notch so that they feel uh, more comfortable within their means. Um, so just, I, I, I think I, that I'm, was eye-opening. And yeah, no, I, I, don't, I don't know of such a, of such, of such a halachic responsibility that exists. And again, there are people who do it. It came up in a conversation, you know, just earlier today about an outstanding communal leader in a, in a Jewish community, out-of-town Jewish community, mm-hmm. who could live in a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful home, but chooses to live in a home which matches the members of his community. Right because he doesn't want to be responsible for creating that kind of a wave. Ashrei Chelko, he's not obligated to do that. He's going above the onus is on each and every one of us to live within our means. Right. And the rewards of that will be felt by each and every one of us who does so. I like the, the, this idea that, that you phrased it as an opportunity, more so than an onus. Um, I wanted to touch on government benefits, right? I'm looking at a chart here from the Census Bureau, um, and we'll link to it in the podcast notes. Um, when, it, when it discusses uh, from neighborhoods, right, it has the percentage of the persons in poverty, what their median household income, at least this is what is reported. Um, and, and you have poverty rates, numbers that are considerably higher than perhaps other neighborhoods uh, in New York. Um, the, the question here is, how much, or I should phrase that, what's the Toradika approach to government benefits? When, when someone's starting out as a couple, should they be, take, should they be taking government benefits? Um, assuming that a grandfather or a father could potentially help them along their way, is, is that the right approach? These numbers are, are considerably higher, like I said. Is this, and, and, and there are discussions about negativity being bred from non-Jews that may be looking at this and saying, hey, why don't they get a job, right? You have some people here in Kolel or, or that are learning and that are relying on it. Are we, as a community, not setting ourselves up for success when we look at numbers like this. And I know and I have this tendency to pack seven questions into one, so feel free to pick it. An easy question, so that's the good Yeah, yeah, right. Um, yeah, so it's a very layered, very layered question. There's, uh, it's, it's, there, there are a number of, of issues that, that, uh, that this question impacts. So let's try to talk about it a little bit. Um, it, Number one, um, many of the communities that you listed are growing, you know, large families. 
it is from those communities that you have listed that we look at the numbers of Jews in the United States and we're seeing Bezos Hashem a stability to those numbers, despite the fact that there are so many who are dropping out of Judaism uh, because the birth rates and family size that are there in the Frum community and especially in the locales that you have listed there are so big. And so what they're doing, you know, you, you want to look at people who say, oh, they're, why don't they get a job? First of all, most of those people do have jobs. Most of those do have jobs. When you look at those communities and numbers, it's not like it, these are all kolil communities. Mm -hmm. They do have jobs. Um, and I'll tell you something else. No one who has that family size can be qualified as a freeloader. They're, they're working very hard in all kinds of ways in order to be able to raise families like that. They've made choices. We can question those choices. We can decide to make, you know, to make other choices. But they are adding a valuable asset to the Jewish people. And they're also adding, we would say, with that, with, with utter confidence, because the Jewish people, we, we are here. As we hope and must be a blessing to the society that surrounds us, they're, they're adding value to their, to their community. So to, to, to portray this as you know, a bunch of people sitting around choosing to be on welfare and, and you know, spending the day drinking beer and, mm -hmm. and, and whatever else it is, that's not the picture that you're, that you're seeing there. That's one point which I think is very important for us to, to, you know, to have in perspective. Let's go the other way for a moment and speak about the trap of, um, of these kinds of situations, which is in general a, a major issue when we're dealing with any financial issue. The, the term Nakia, which was used earlier, that is, you know, the, the government benefits are a wonderful, wonderful thing. And we have to make sure that we maintain perfect ethics in our entitlements to those benefits. And it can be tricky. It could be hard to give up government-funded health insurance. And, and therefore, we have to make sure that we don't put ourselves... Was that a plug for Obamacare? Or was not? Okay. Uh, it was not a plug for Obamacare, but, I, but uh, you know, for, in our drastically, uh, in our dramatically Republican community, we have a lot of people who are benefiting from Obamacare. Mm -hmm. A lot. A lot. And I don't know how many of them returned the the Biden stimulus checks either, um, but um, not many. <laughs> but the the um, we just have to make sure that we approach these things. All of our community approaches these things with uh, the integrity of truly being deserving and, and honestly and, and and truthfully deserving the the benefits. And that's a you know that's a very very important. A very important value. The Rambam wrote in Hilchos Talmud Torah, famously, that and the Rambam was very strong about this, and m most Rishonim disagreed with him uh, on the extent to which he took it. 
the Rambam wrote very vigorously about the idea that a person shouldn't be supporting their lifestyle by becoming dependent upon others, on the support of others. That a person wants should study Torah, and they should study Torah, and they should be dedicated to Torah, and, and uh, they want the crown of Torah, they should do it, in a sense, day and night. But, but, but the Rambam insisted that that's not to rule out uh, the time spent to work to live. Simple lifestyle, so it wouldn't be an overwhelming job, but that they shouldn't put their put the onus on others to be able to support their lifestyle. And that's, of course, a very tricky issue sure. in, in, in from economics and in this matter as well. Um, the, the counterpoint to consider, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I would just say for myself, uh, you know, in personal lifestyle choices and direction, I don't personally like to do the government program thing. Of course, we all benefit from some government government sure. programs, but you know, to, to be able to work towards self-sufficiency, you know, saves us as individuals, as a community from certain isionos. There's a, some character building that's that's valuable in But remember, there aren't objections which are raised to the level of government support in graduate school communities, where everybody is getting government support in order to be able to make it through their their graduate school and PhD. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be simplistic and people say, yeah, of course, yeah, because they're doing that now and in six years or in eight years they're gonna be they'll be killing it, you know, mm -hmm. whatever the expression is, you know, they'll be they'll be making lots of money and they'll be and they'll be fine. It's true. It's true. But the idea is that there's an interest to 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 um, to support the advancement of certain values, certain people. We 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 want people who will have this advanced level of education. You know, let's help them. Now, the government didn't decide that they want to support from lifestyles or otherwise, but but uh, again, we uh, a community is an asset. They're going to have higher rates of children. It's going to be much easier to classify, you know, to have you know higher poverty rates. They need they, they need more money just to you know to make it. And um, I, I I think the most important point I would want to make is yeah. I don't want to be sitting here in judgment of the choices of other communities without trying to hear their voices. Or make their voices be heard. Understood. You look at a statistics like that, you could say, "That's horrible. How could they do? How could they do such a thing?" It may not be my personal lifestyle choice. I could see lots of reasons that that's that some of those things are some of the best investments that sure. uh, that society could yeah. make. And, and and those investing in children. Yeah, and turning over to um, revenue streams when you look at families and and not necessarily Jewish there's this need for two income streams right you have the man who's going to work and more recently the the women in the workplace um, how does a shtadlis fit into that same um, what does that mean that is a significant uh, it's a significant shtadlis it's not new that women are working, you know, it's in the Mishnah that, that, that women provided uh, 
a portion of the income in a family. But yes, the level of going out of the house and things like that is certainly you know, part of a, something that has changed uh, you know, generationally. Um, and uh, some see it as opportunity. And, and some see as well. And some of those very same people who see it as opportunity see that there are costs involved in terms of hands-on parenting, involvement of, of, of parents in the lives of their children. Um, so it's a cost. And uh, What's ideal though, right? You have the women, more and more women are becoming the breadwinners while perhaps the husband is learning more or um, more responsibility on the finance side is being handed towards the women. Is, is that ideal? There's those that say it, it, it upsets fat family dynamics in some ways. I think I think it I think it does. I don't think that anyone would be able to say that there's. I shouldn't say uh, it's not for me to say what anybody else would say. I usually use there are those that say as my couch when it's my own personal opinion. But <laughs> you do you. No. There's there are there there aren't decisions in life that we make or choices we make that are one hundred percent anything. We live in a world where every good choice comes with a cost. And the let's speak first of all stage one. Stage one is that women engaged in the workforce, I'm not talking about for fulfillment purposes, which is an issue for itself and a, and a significant one for itself, but for financial reasons is not something which is a, a, by any means a main breadwinner, kolel choice matter. In every community, of every lifestyle choice, two incomes is, has become more of, a, more of a norm, more of a norm. So, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's one piece. And there is a cost at, of, you know, the level of present and engaged and dedicated parenting, you know, undistracted, that is, is, is going to be assumed to be paid for that. Mm -hmm. um, many people will, many women and men, you know, because again, when a woman is working, we can't say, "Oh, you're working plus," right? And, you know, the husband has to has to share has to share even more in the parenting role in such a situation. So many who are in such situations do a you know they're keenly aware of their children's needs, and they work very hard to be able to do the the necessary corrective. And um, and Baruch Hashem, they do great, but they're aware. They're aware. Um, some, you know, there could be places and there could come a time when people don't even know that there's such a thing as a, as a valuable standard of seeing your children after school, being home when they get back from school, um, you know, being available for them in the evening. You know, quality time is very nice, but you can't, uh, as a wise person who I married to once said to me, you can't like schedule the time for your child to feel comfortable to just unburden themselves about, oh, you, 
you, you have like something which is really on your mind from school, perfect, between 5.30 and 6, right. you know, I, I won't take any emails. Send me a you calendar know? invite, doesn't work here. Right, you have to just be available and, and, and uh, you know, it's an issue, it's a societal issue, it's a societal right. issue generally, it's a societal issue for us that has to be compensated for. The other issue which you raise about, uh, you know, women choosing to be principal breadwinners because husbands will be dedicated to Limur HaTorah, or, or things like that, that's also an issue. And it's, again, it's a choice of values. There's a cost. Of course there's a cost. Mm -hmm. There's a cost to, to the maternal ability to be able to, to play that role. There's a cost to family dynamics, to what, you know, to, to what it means to be a husband and a father. But there's a benefit, and they're choosing the benefit over the cost. And there would be a rationale for that. Again, everyone can make their their hashara, their estimation, and their their their, their decision, but I have um, my wife and I spent the first seven years of our marriage. I was in kolo. Um, wasn't uh, it, it wasn't like some kind of a crazy thing. The cost of living was much less. Mm -hmm. Our our apartment rent was three hundred and ten dollars. Uh, I hope you locked in at that price. What's that? I hope you locked in at that <laughs> price. Um, and uh, and uh, you know it was it was I, I don't I think if you would ask her you would ask like the the opportunity we had to start our marriage where I was you know learning like from first thing in the morning till you know till late at night and then involved you know also I was I contributed to the to, you know to the household income I you know at, at that time as well but it was it, it has had an impact that we feel in our marriage to this day uh, so there are costs and there are benefits there are costs and there are benefits let's talk um, nicer um, moving to uh, another topic here um, Someone who's accepting some level of tzedakah or government benefits or whatnot, how does Miser play a role in that? Um, and then another question on that, when it comes to tuition, right? There are those that say you could allocate some sort of Miser towards tuition. Others say it's not so simple. What's the, uh, what's the final judgment for the listening audience here? Or how should one go about it? Okay, so uh, there's a big question in Paiskim whether you know, whether it's a chiyuv, whether it's a minag. Um, uh, I think the, the the broad consensus is that it's a it's something which is a very very valuable hanhaga, very valuable practice. I personally have you know you know certainly have tried to main, have maintained Baruch Hashem, and. Um, it's a very, very, very valuable hanhaga. Again, that some say is an obligation, but others would say is a as a as a hanhaga tova, and and one that one that we have the rare occurrence of a promise, which is found in the shulchan aruch. Okay, not a skula, which is in an advertisement someplace, but a promise and a. Promise from the navi, malachi. That Hashem promises bracha to, to, to one who, who, who does this. Um, that said, uh, it, a, a person who's not making ends meet 
and especially when their giving of tzedakah will impose a greater burden on those who are helping to make up the difference, needs to have their permission in order to engage in Meiser. I can't say he's not mechuyev, and it seems clear from many Paiskin, and everyone should ask their own shilas, I assume, that they don't turn to this podcast for their absolute halachic guidance, or do they? I, I, I hope not, because I'm by no means uh, qualified to even direct them to the, to the right sources, but... So, again, since there are so many Paiskim who would say that a person who's not making ends meet is not mechayev and miser, for a person to take it upon themselves to do it and believe in the school of value is not necessarily appropriate and maybe downright wrong if, as a result, someone else is making up the shortfall. Uh, whether a, a, a patron, whether a lender that they're not sure how they're going to pay back or, or things like that. So um, you know, that, that's the only qualification which we would give. Uh, other than that, you know, people have to be responsible in many aspects of their savings, uh, of their finances, but one of them uh, one of them would be to put money into savings and to, to save for that non-surprise, which is that Bezos Hashem, 13 years after your son is born, he's going to need a bar mitzvah. Mm-hmm. And Bezos Hashem, we hope and pray that sometime afterwards your children will need weddings. So you, know, you have to plan for those and you have to plan for retirement and put money away for those things. But um, you also have to put away stuff, put away money in the eternal account of Meiser mm-hmm. and uh, of Tzedakah and Meiser. So that's the case. Now, can Meister money be used to pay tuition? So uh, there are those who say yes. It's very well known that Ramesha Feinstein felt that it was not appropriate to do so generally, that it would be called Poreachovo Mina Meister. We have an obligation to pay tuition, to pay Scharlimo to educate our children, and Ramesha held even boys and girls. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and therefore, you're not allowed to pay obligations from Meister. And the full amount? Okay, so so could there be some aspect of the of the limud that you would be able to as meiser? So there are people who would find different things. So for example, if there's a building fund in the school, there's always a building fund, by the way. There's never not okay, the amount the amount that's for the building fund, yeah. fund, the amount that's a required donation. So some say, oh, it's still an obligation, but part of it is that the school is saying we know that our parents have charitable dollars. We are requiring that they direct some of those charitable dollars to us. That doesn't mean that you can't use MISER for that. Right. Uh, there are some who would say that if the price of tuition is higher than the cost of educating the child, some schools have that. In other words, in order to have built-in scholarship rates, that maybe that extra, that over, uh, overage may also be considered to be something uh, but again, these are shilas which people should, you know, should ask for 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 individual hadracha. Uh, there, there's a yet a, just another tack that I would just mention, which is that some people might say that you know, technically speaking, I could qualify for a scholarship, even according to this particular institution's guidelines, I could qualify for a scholarship. Mm-hmm. But rather than apply for a scholarship, I'm going to pay full with a portion of it, with a portion of it coming from my charitable funds. Mm-hmm. And uh, if they're accurate about it, I don't know if they know the formula, right. but if, for example, if tuition is $10,000 and based on their income, they would be entitled to a scholarship 
that they don't have to pay 6,000. But they say, you know what? You know, I, I make $180,000 a year or whatever it is, and I have therefore, you know, $18,000 know, of, of charitable money. I'm going to give 4,000. I, I would qualify, let's say, again, because I have 14 children for a, for, for a, a scholarship. I'm going to give the difference out of my charitable money. And that's a beautiful thing to do because isn't it appropriate to, 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 you know, to give charity, discretionary charity to a place which is doing so much for your own children? Is tuition too high? Is tuition too high? I could, I could elaborate, but I figured, I think people, people, like I asked people around, I said, hey, I'm having a discussion with Rabbi Hauer. And a few people said, you got to discuss tuition. It's, it's, it's very You've got to discuss tuition. You can't have a discussion about Jewish economics or orthodox economics without, without somewhere touching on the topic of tuition. It's, it's, it's likely the largest expense that most from Jews have, yeah. assuming that they For have sure. children. Yeah. Families that are raising children, yeah. It's, 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 it's more than their health insurance. It's, right. it's uh, almost every case more than their mortgage. Right. Is, is the percentage of one's income in 2021 um, allocated towards tuition higher than what that percentage was 20, 30 years ago? Meaning, are, 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 have the numbers been steady and this is just another generation dealing with the same question? My, I, I, I don't like answering data questions without, without you know, being able to give you the exact numbers and so on and so forth. Um, the my, the OU my, has a data team, right? We have a data team, okay. and I just don't have the, all the answers to all the questions on my fingerprints. The fingertips, I don't even remember the name of some divisions. Remember. <laughs> um, but um, uh, but um, I, I, I don't know whether the number is 20 or 30 years ago or whether it's... Uh, but it, it certainly has, has grown, I think, in terms of the proportion to income, uh, the, the, the tuition responsibility or burden, whatever whatever it is that you want to call it. And it's a huge issue. It's a huge issue. Is it too high? What do you mean by that question? Are schools charging more than they need to charge? Are we funding the, you know, the Bahamas junkets for the staff that they do, you know, for professional days? No. Uh, nobody's getting, I mean, I shouldn't say I'm, somebody will tell me a story of someone somewhere who has a privately owned school and they're doing fine and so on and so forth. I understand, but by, by and large, chinuch is not where people go to make the big bucks. I, right. I, I, if there's one important lesson that came from this podcast, it was that, right? Right. Um, right? So people don't, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not lucrative. Everyone is struggling. Teachers are struggling. Rebbeim are struggling. Uh, schools are struggling. So is it too high? It's, it's expensive. It's expensive. Uh, you know, on our end, on the OU end, we uh, continue to invest very significantly in, in our advocacy, our you know, teacher advocacy, to help get more of a governmental partnership in it. And it brings a lot of resources into schools, but it's, there's so much that is, that is needed. So tuition costs remain high and difficult. All of us should be thinking about how we could perhaps, quote unquote, live within our means and see if there are things that we could do to, to make it more affordable. Um, uh, 
but uh, I, I don't sit in the seat to be able to, for sure not to want to, and certainly not to be able to point a finger and say, you know, they're doing this, you know, and so on, extra extravagantly. There are, there are things which schools might do that are beyond the basics, and it could, many times there's a cheshben, a calculation, just like individuals making their own lives, right. that this is necessary for the environment that the kids, that the kids need, or that in order to have the kind of support of the parent body, this is what we have to deliver. But we need to figure out how to, uh, how to make it less punishing. Right, right. And I know that that sounds sort of like helpless and saying, yeah, it's a problem, I have no clue what to do about it. Um, but we, uh, we're, 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 we're trying to do, we have to continue to try to do, and you should keep bringing up the question because, because we, have to, we, we have to continue to, to find ways to just ease it a little bit. There's this question as to why one who follows the Torah way and that there's this commandment not to charge someone interest, right? And, and they ask, what, what's, so, what's the reasoning behind that in the term? Why can't you charge interest? And there's this shot I heard that when someone works for their, for their money, they're thankful to Hashem. But Ribis, when someone has, knows that this interest, this money is going to come to them, they forget. They're not thankful anymore. And staying away from an industry in which it's just Magili, it's that check's gonna come every every on the first of every month, that's something we have to stay away from. So my question is, how do we infuse thankfulness into our everyday life, right? How do we work on being appreciative for everything we do have, right? We, we can always look at our, our, our budgets and our numbers and say, hey, it's not enough, it's not enough, but how do we focus on the positive here, right? Like the way I phrased that question earlier about onus and, and you had mentioned, no, it's an opportunity. How do we take a step back and say, hey, I'm, I, I'm thankful for what I do have. How do we make that the norm versus, hey, I'm struggling, oh, I gotta go to work. No, I'm going to work. This is an opportunity. I should be excited to have such an opportunity. I should be excited that I have a job. Yes, it's not necessarily the job I've always wanted to have, right? There has to be some sort of you know, a wise question is, is half the answer. In this case, it's the whole answer. Gratitude has to be an, an, an intentional exercise that people bring themselves to focus on. You know, there, there are delicious uh, anecdotes, stories that bring it out. I'm sure you may have read the story. I've read the same story about different people who uh, a person came to the Kosel one night, late at night, a rabbi and a gvir. And a wealthy person, and they come to the Kosel to Davin Marev late at night, and they see a man, looks like Yerushalmi, and he's standing by the Kosel, and he's crying his eyes out. And they Davin Marev, and he's still standing there crying his eyes out. And you know, one signals to the other, and you know, the, 
a fellow goes over to him and says, uh, waits for him to sort of like take a pause, take a breath, and he says, uh, excuse me, Shalom Aleichem, Aleichem Shalom. He says, I, I, I uh, you know, I, I, I do a lot of things to help people in different situations. And I couldn't help but notice you seem to be, is there something that I could help you with? Uh, everything is fine. And he doesn't quite take no for an answer. He says, you know, I, I, I help people who are dealing with illness, and I have a very good friend who helps people with parnas, and I happen to have with me a person who's a big, a very wealthy person who likes to help people. And I said, no, no, no. And he kept asking, and he kept saying, no, no, no. And finally he said, so, excuse me, but you have to ask me, you have to tell me, I, I just saw you, you were crying your eyes out. And the man said, yeah, I was. He says, tonight, I made the last Shava Brachas for my youngest child. And I came to the Kaisal to say thank you, to thank the Rabbanu for everything which I had. How many times have you gotten a request from someone, you know, my aunt is going into surgery, could you please daven for her? How many times did you get, three days later, my aunt did terrific in surgery, could you please thank the Rabbana Shalom for me? We ask. We don't say thanks. I don't know if it's true or apocryphal, but I saw written in a, in a sefer a story of a person who was davening with the Chafetz Chaim. And the Chafetz Chaim's Shemona Esrei just went on and on and on. And the person didn't understand. He asked the Chafetz Chaim. He said, it was In the bracha of Maidim, of thanks, he was, he just, he started, you know, how do I count the ways? Ilufinu kayam. And there are people who express gratitude in their lives. There are people who, you know, I know people who have their habit that before they go to sleep at night, they have to find 30 things that they're grateful for. Maybe they say it to themselves, maybe they say it to their spouse, maybe they say it to their children. You know, Friday night at the table after uh, Maitzi, someone can, you know, the, uh, people can, 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 can do it. But just like in life, just always just to pause and to express gratitude. That was what David HaMelech put in place when he said that you should make a hundred brachas every day. Just keep stopping and realizing and recognizing the blessings that we have. There's nothing healthier in the world. There's nothing healthier in the world. We're called Yehudim. Yehudim means we're professionally grateful. The Thank You Hashem movement would be a beautiful uh, thank sponsor you Hashem. for this episode. Thank You Hashem, exactly, yeah, right. let's think, yeah, come on. Right. Right. You know, it's, it's amazing. It's a, it's a, it's an amazing thing, and we're so blessed. We're so we're we're so blessed. Of course, we have needs and so on and so forth. This is like a time of such shefa of bracha in the Jewish people, and we're just going to focus on that. We need more and expand the needs, or just pause and say, "Wow, it's unbelievable." Beautiful, beautiful thought. I think. Uh, We've covered a lot of ground here over the last hour and plus, and I don't see this as the end of the conversation, but the beginning of a great one. Uh, expect to be back if I'm invited. Here in the could audience. I give you a parting thought? Yes, so you please. Can, you can conclude it or not. We started this discussion speaking about bitachon and hishtadlus, about efforts versus faith. Um, 
the presence of Hashem in our lives is not just based on how much work we put in, but just what the focus is of our lives. And in this quote-unquote struggle between Ishtadlis and Bitachon, of efforts and trust in Hashem, there's, it goes side by side with that other struggle between materialism and spirituality. And, you know, the place where the Rambam, for example, says the opposite and says, you know, the person who dedicates their lives to spirituality, Hashem will take care of them, will take care of them, is not because they're just not working, it's because in their lives the biggest reality were the intangibles, were the spiritual things. And when those become the most valuable things in our lives, we're, 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 we're rolling out the red carpet for HaKadosh Baruch Hu to come into our lives and to do that much more for us. So it, it not only lowers our monthly nut and makes us able to work less, mm -hmm. but it just, just changes the entire culture of our, of our lives and, and will bring with it much bracha. So, uh, love that. Kedushim to you. It's, yeah. it's good. It's just good all around. Yeah. I have a flight out to Kansas at 11 p.m. tonight, so <laughs> <laughs> we'll end it here. But thank you so much. Thank okay. you. And there you have it, all your questions answered. Just kidding. You probably have even more questions than you did from when you first started listening to this episode. But that's the goal. The goal of Kosher Money is to create dialogue, spread awareness, try to remove the stigma around conversations like that. Um, the same way mental health, right? Mental health has come a long way from where it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. And funny I mentioned that, like I didn't know, one of the upcoming episodes we're going to discuss mental health as it relates as it relates to money. Uh, we're going to focus on the biggest expense Orthodox Jewish families are facing. Spoiler alert, it's tuition. Does it really have to be that high? We're going to go into that. Um, another episode we're going to do is budgeting really excited about that episode it's going to create it's not just one episode but we're going to hit it home in in this upcoming episode you'll hear all about money management stay tuned yes right because we can't do that without them our sponsor is livingsmarterjewish.org a fantastic money based resource head over there click around if you have questions for them related to your money email info at livingsmarterjewish.org. This episode, as all our episodes are, is brought to you by livinglechaim.com. Search them on YouTube. Subscribe for awesome content. Follow them on Instagram. Be sure, okay, and this is important, be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. There's so many different podcast networks. Everyone uses a different one. But if you have the ability to review us, five stars. If it goes up to 40 stars, give us 40 stars. We love stars and we want to help you. So until then, keep your money kosher. You can find out more about kosher money by visiting livinglechaim.com and you can see the other podcasts that we're going to have there. This podcast has been hosted by my brother, Eli Langer, produced by me, Yaakov Langer, and brought to you by Living Lechaim in partnership with Living Smarter Jewish, an awesome organization under the awesome umbrella of the OU. Until next time, enjoy life. Living L'chaim.